And I think as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we were going to get to a, a few passages here and we were going to slow down like we were driving through a school zone. <clears throat> now listen, you could do that in any book of the Bible. Matter of fact, when you're studying and reading the Bible, that's kind of how you should, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> how you should read it. You should get to places where you're just cruising through passages and all of a sudden the Lord just says, whoa, 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 slow down and take a careful look at this. Because you're in a place where God wants to communicate something that's contained in those passages. And so I think that's true for us as we're walking through the study of 1 Peter. Uh, everything in 1 Peter is going to serve us and benefit us. But there's also a dynamic that the realm in which where God has us as a church right now. I think there's some things that we want to make sure that we glean from these passages to help us walk in God's purpose. As we read the passage again today... How many guys have seen this? It's a commercial for a car. It's a, uh, I think it's a Ford Fiesta. It starts with this couple. They're just seated in this green little car, and, and he goes to start the car, and he just does a real simple thing. He just presses the start button, and all of a sudden, this music starts, you know, dun, 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 and people are parachuting out of planes around him, and all of a sudden, guys are coming riding by on unicycles with letters, People are being jettisoned out from manhole covers all around them. And then he gets to the end. I, I watched the commercial just to see his response when he gets to the end. He gets to the end and he looks over, I guess, at his wife and he says, it's a pretty big thing. <laughs> That's it, you know. It's a pretty big thing. When we read this passage, it's a pretty big thing. And there's stuff jumping out in this passage so maybe I should have had the band play that background music while we uh, read the passage together here. But, you know, I know that we love the fact that God has us on a mission as Christians. We're on a mission into the world, impacting this world. Uh, I, I always clarify that that's a secondary mission. The primary mission is our return to God as our Savior and the one whom we love the most. To worship him and enjoy him forever, which is what we do now and we'll do it for all of eternity. But just as Peter's going to sort of address some issues of keeping your lives amongst the Gentiles a certain way, and he's going to address some of that, he hits these issues here, and it's a pretty big thing. So when we start in verse 4, and I'm just going to catch a little bit of context before we get back to verses 9 and 10. As you come to him, and it describes him, this living stone, then it says in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then you jump over to verse 9 where he picks up that priesthood language again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are big concepts, right? This is people jumping out of airplanes and popping up out of potholes and riding unicycles. You're, you're a holy nation, and not just that. You're a royal priesthood. Oh, and, and you are God's special people, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Whether you realize that or not, at one point in your life, you were not a people. What do you mean? Well, I was not a people. I had a name. I had family. Shopped at Walmart. Went to work. 
liked a hobby, attended a couple of games. I, what do you mean I wasn't a people? Well, according to God's view of ultimate personhood, you were not a people. You had missed that, all of us. But now, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Lord, only by your spirit do these words become more than words to us. The reality is your living word is alive. It's sharp, cuts into our lives. It penetrates deeply into our souls. It touches us in the places that nothing else can. So Lord, today, again, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, lead us into these truths and shape our lives with these truths. In Jesus' name. This passage is a big deal. Now, if I just spoke in just the, the common live-in-your-life relevancy of being a human being, I think all of us could, could agree that even if, even if you didn't start with the Bible, you just walked into people's worlds and you said, what, what's everybody after? What, what are some things that are just basic to human desires? I think everybody would agree they're after a sense of belonging. If you were to run down most crime statistics, most dysfunctional dynamics, they touch on the issue of, how we feel about people and how we belong to them. We want to belong. Something in us wants to belong. And something in us wants to live a life that has purpose. We, we don't ever want to get to the place in our life where we're just feeling like everything I'm doing is meaningless. It just doesn't matter. And we want purpose and we want belonging. Well, you find both of those in this passage. You find a sense of family here. There's, the, there's that spiritual house. There's being a people there's a place to belong. And then there's purpose here as well. There's function for our lives, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, and a people to show forth the excellencies of him. You, that, that's a job description. Everybody here, no matter what you do to make a living on this earth, you just, you just got a functional description of your life. So there's function and purpose and there's belonging in this passage. And every one of us wants those things. But today where I want to take us a little bit is into the realm of this language of, of the house that's here, these family dynamics that are here. And he highlights something in verse 10. Once you were not a people. Right? Once you were not a people. Right? What do you mean by that? Let's, let's go back to Ephesians 2 again. We were there last week. As I said last week, the Bible is our first commentary on the Bible. Before we invite others to comment, we want to find out what the Bible says about the Bible. Paul spoke about this same concept, this house dynamic. As a matter of fact, the living stone that was rejected in 1 Peter, Paul's going to bring it up in this passage as well. But listen to how he addresses the people. He's speaking to Gentiles who have come into the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Therefore, remember, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, you call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. Once you were not a people. And then Paul says, do you remember that for yourself? Do you remember what it was like when life felt like you don't belong ultimately? There's something missing. You're wandering through this life. You feel alienated. You feel distant. You feel disconnected. You feel like something's missing. There's just something not right about my life. Do, do you remember that? Because it matters. It, this matters when it comes to that guy sitting in the back who's going to come in and out of here and no one's going to connect with him. See, now, if you remember that, you remember what it's like to sit in that seat and feel like life doesn't work, I don't belong, I feel alienated, I feel alone in this world. And when you stop remembering that, you're going to stop remembering that he's seated here today. And you won't go look for him. This has huge relevance for how we walk out being the people of God. Right, we're gonna, he's going to move us into some incredible news when we get to verse 17. <clears throat> he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right, at some point you begin to realize that in this room is family who shares a common father ultimately. Where we have earthly fathers, they are temporary fathers. We have an eternal father who we will share together forever. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it goes back to that being built on the foundation, Christ himself being the cornerstone, right? Same conversation Paul's having that Peter has been having. And what I want us to get in touch with today is remembering the condition of people's lives. At one time, you were not a people. How do we care for those folks? You know, in one sense, the, the church is, is, a, is a hospital, right? People come into a hospital in a variety of conditions. Some of them are coming into the emergency room. I mean, there's just something terrible has happened in their life, and their life is unraveled. And they're here today. You know, if you could just change your imagery a little bit. They came in dressed a certain way, but can you see them rolled in on a Guernsey spiritually? Can you see somebody needed to be here today because they're in an emergency in their life? Somebody rolled in sort of an ICU. It's not something that just happened over the weekend. It's something that's been going on, and their life has been in this long cycle of just desperation. And, and they're here. They're here today in the hospital. And there's some folks here today who are, are visiting the hospital because they have a chronic condition. That in their life they have lived with issues and things in them, health, emotional, thought dynamics that visit them chronically. Listen, they're here seated among us. How do we relate to them? Well, there's an important realm. There's, there's a word I want to bring into the conversation. As a matter of fact, this was a word that I felt strongly about going back to last summer to do some kind of a series of teachings on hospitality, on how the Bible teaches hospitality. And so we're going to get at that a little bit in this setting because the people of God 
is the place for the hospitality of the people of God. And you know, it's interesting, hospital and hospitality, they both proceed from the same Latin word. So we are here caring for those who are in a hospitalized spiritual condition. Remember, once you were rolled in on a Guernsey. Once you were not a people, you know what life felt like. Once you were spiritually homeless. Right, does that draw up an image for you? Right, you see homeless people? Right, there's, no, there, there's nothing that grips my heart. A few things. Uh, worse than driving home from Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, having been with my family, having been with relatives, and we've celebrated, we've been together extended family and people that have been in your lives for years and years and years and you get in the car and you're driving back home and you see some guy on Thanksgiving Day, on Christmas Day, by himself walking down the highway. Oh, it rips at my heart. It's not thinking, what, what is this man's life like? What is he experiencing? Does he have no family? Does he have no one on this day to be together with? And that's what I can see with my physical eyes. You understand we live in a spiritual universe. And there are lots of spiritually homeless people. They don't have to dress in garb that's run down and be isolated by themselves. They could be right here today looking like just like us. But spiritually, homeless. And they're needing a hospital. They're needing hospitality. Right? Look, in, look over in, back to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the book here to draw this thought because I think it, it is to be contained in this peculiar people called the people of God. We find this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? Here in this environment, if there's the medicine of the hospital, it is, it is love. I mean, there's many things. It's not this one tube of medicine in a hospital, but boy, love sure is an important one. That people come into the family of God and what they experience is love. They experience the love of God in the midst of the people of God. And, and obviously, I mean, we could spend all day. But I, I just honed in on just Peter. If we don't even venture outside any, into anybody else in the New Testament because we'd be forever just reading the passages, look at these thoughts. Love amongst the people of God. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 2, verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. First Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. And this is huge relational language. This is what characterizes the body of Christ. This is the kind of thing, as we said last week, that when people get around you, they're going to notice something. They're going to want to say, tell me why you have this hope that you have. It says, when you extract this from the body of Christ, that people stop asking questions. They will know you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. 
Not, not, not love that's just sort of, we're, you know, hey, okay, so we don't curse each other out. Yeah, you know, dude pulled out in the parking lot, you know, I started to flip him off under the dashboard, but I said, you know, this is church. So I didn't, you know, I didn't. Really had a righteous moment there. Uh, okay, great. The love the Bible's describing isn't some downgraded version of the world's harsh activities. It's much more than that. It's blow your mind kind of love. It's why are you, why are you relating to me the way you are after what I did? After what I did to you? Why are you responding to me that way? Right? And do you know, you know where that response comes from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from staring at the cross. It comes from wondering, why would you do that for me? Why would you love me that way? See, that's what fuels love for one another. First Peter 1, verse 5. For this very, I'm sorry, 2 Peter. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Now, that, that's a whole other little realm there. I won't go into it. But do you notice that there's, you know, sometimes we can use the word love like, well, you know, we're supposed to love each other. And I don't know what that's intended to mean, but it just sort of has this blanket statement. How about if I told you you're to have affection for one another? Oh, no. That's, that's harder. Well, it shouldn't be because it sounds like love is graduate-level affection. So affection is, I don't know, junior high, and love is graduate school. But it's amazing how we can say, well, yeah, I know, we, we love the brothers. You know, we love one another, but, but we certainly don't like each other. Mm, I mean, I, I get that a little bit. But affection is about causing your heart to be toward that person in an intentional, kind way. So, you know, we need to rescue love from our poor definition, I think. This is a place of unusual love. Look back there in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 8, it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's the challenge. You started off loving, and stuff happens. And so this verse jumps into the reality that I'm needing to be told. Okay, Keith, it was great that you loved in the beginning. Now, keep loving. How many of you know it's, it's harder to keep loving than it is to start loving? You've been around the block enough to figure that one out. Wayne Grudem says, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflicts abound. Satan's perverse delight. Right? If you were just to look, you know, if this was a hospital and you're checking for symptoms here, what are the symptoms? Well, in this passage, there's symptoms of suspicion, a lot of misunderstanding going on, and conflict. All right, now, if that's in your world, you look at your life and you say, yeah, yeah that's, I, I'm, I'm there. Right, well, the diagnosis in this passage is a lack of love. Now, before you make somebody else responsible for your symptoms, you might want to just make sure that it's not your lack of love that's causing you to be suspicious. 
and causing you to bump into chronic misunderstandings and conflicts are in your heart because in your own heart, you lack love for one another. Now listen, uh, love, let's be realistic, love will not always feel easy or even attractive. The love the Bible describes is, is not this happenstance, kind of fell in love kind of a thing. Now, there's no falling in love here. We're fallen people. We fall into other stuff. We don't fall into love. Right? Listen to this thought from Ken Hughes, who's describing this same dynamic amongst the people of God from Hebrews. He says, the structure of the command here to keep on loving each other as brothers, in Hebrews 13, suggests that brotherly and sisterly bonds in the little church were dangerously frayed among some of the members. This was not the way they had begun, because initially the fresh experience of salvation in Christ had brought with it the discovery of a shared paternity, the joyous sense of being brothers and sisters with the same father, and the experience of Philadelphia, the word used here meaning brotherly love. At first, this love had come to those new believers as naturally as one's first steps. Loving others was as easy as falling off a log. They could not wait to get to church where they could drink in the fellowship of the godly. The fellowship of their new brothers and sisters was delectably mysterious to them, and they rejoiced in plumbing the depth of each other's souls. But it had been waning, and the little house church, with the years of stress and uncertainty, some of the brethren had grown weary of each other. I don't know how that happened to them, but... Apparently, that's possible. Now, let's just play along. I know we don't have these issues, but since it's in the Bible, we probably should act like we do. And a few actually seem to exchange mutual hatred in the family of God. And nobody, I know nobody's shocked. I'm going to say, don't be shocked. Because you can go into a family much smaller some ways, different types of issues and less issues. And you can find exactly that. People who have grown tired of each other. And even in families, there can exist some forms of mutual hatred in those relationships. So, okay, listen, if that's happening in a group this big, got a lot of potential right here for that to be on display here. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us, if we're, if we're a little bit honest and humble, we can find ourselves in that passage, right? It's, it's just too true, too often, the old phrase that familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that phrase? Over time, something that's new, when you first start to kind of get around it, it has this enamoring, easy effect on you because it's got no resume and it's got no history. It hasn't bugged you long enough yet. It hasn't upset you. You haven't discovered all the nuances that make it terrible. So in the beginning, everything that's new, which is why Americans are addicted to new, by the way, everything that's new is easy to love. It's easy to love. There's no earnestness. There's no need to plead for someone to earnestly love or persevere in love because new stuff is easy to love. Right? Real-life examples from the Collins Chronicles. Um, we are discussing today going to pick up a puppy. Now, we've always had dogs, so that's not, a, that's not a, an issue. The issue for us, and this was really sad, 
thing. I came, I came home from our men's retreat to our four-year-old Labrador just was look, acting a little unusual. She was fine when I left, and within 24 hours, she was dead. She just tragically died. She may have gotten into some poison or something. And so that 24 hours was one of the most miserable 24 hours in the history of our family, you know, just watching this dog slowly die uh, together. So, you know, eventually we start getting another puppy. And, you know, the thought of getting another puppy is met with eager enthusiasm and support and sacrifice and willingness. Um, you know, I think some of them are willing to donate blood if the dog needs it. Do uh, anything, anything for the dog. And, you know, and I'm excited. I've always had dogs. I'm excited to have a dog and have another little puppy, and they're really cute and everything. But, you know, here's the reality. I'm remembering back that just a few months ago, I could hear my voice, not even incriminating any of them. I can hear my voice ringing out in the house for the dog that we've had for four years at that point, sounding like this. What is wrong with you, dog? I just let you in, and you want to go out again? doesn't sound that way right now for us, right? It's a puppy. Oh, yeah, we'll let the dog out. We'll sleep outside with it if we have to. You know, it's like, no, no. And when I get familiar with this dog, I'm not going to want to get up and let it out. I'm just telling you. That's, you know, familiarity does that. It's easy to love stuff in the beginning. My wife and I, this past week, passed our 20-year anniversary. 20 years. You know, if, if you've been married for very long, you, you realize the love that it takes to walk in at 20 years is different than the love that it took in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of water underneath a lot of bridges by the time you get to the 20-year mark, and uh, there's a lot of discovery of really really irritating stuff that exists between two people who live their lives in the same proximity to each other all the time. It's a different kind of love. It's still love, but it involves words like earnestness and perseverance in those categories. There's other ingredients that are interfering with love's ease, like forgiveness and working through differences and difficulties. I didn't put this thought in your outline, but John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage, says, why this emphasis on forgiving and forbearing rather than, say, on romance and enjoying each other? I gave three answers. One, because there's going to be conflict based on sin. We need to forgive sin and forbear strangeness. It's a good choice of words. There's things that I do that are strange to my wife. Please don't amen that, Peter. Um, there are things that she does that are strange to me. Like, why do you think that way? Why do you do that that way? So there's strangeness there. Now, now, all couples would benefit from recognizing strangeness is not necessarily sin. It's, just, it's strange to you, but it makes perfect sense to them. Right? I mean, I feel sorry for people like that, but nonetheless, they're strange. He goes on and says, sometimes you won't, you won't even agree on which is which, whether it's sin or strangeness. Right? Uh, Two, because the hard, listen, the hard, rugged work of forgiving and forbearing is what makes it possible for affections to flourish when they seem to have died. I see the church is in this arena. 
just called to lovingly tolerate each other, but we're called to have affection for each other. If there's issues of unforgiveness that break those relationships, then it's hard for affections to flourish. Oh, I can sign off on some technical thing called, yeah, I love all Christians. Do you have an affection for them? Well, I don't know about that. Third, he says, because God gets glory when two very different and very imperfect people forge a life of faithfulness in the furnace of affliction by relying on Christ. See, love is not always easy. I've moved that from home life and marriage into this building, into this family dynamic. Listen, love in the church is not always easy. It is not always attractive. There are significant differences. There is strangeness among us, and there's sin in our midst. And yet we're called to love each other and to build affection for one another as we relate together. So in moving toward this word, this hospitality word, hospitality in the Bible all over the place is kind of linked together with love. And love, I know the Bible verse here, we go back to 1 Peter again, should say, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So love covers sin, but love is not just some amazing holy tolerance of others bugging you. Because it moves immediately from that posture to show hospitality to one another. Love is not just, I could kill you right now, but I'm not. You feeling the love, man? (laughs) Love is now moving toward that person in a way that shows them something. And Peter says, show hospitality to one another. This thought from Wayne Grudem again. He says, earnest love, which seeks the good of others before one's own, finds practical expression in hospitality and in using every gift for one another. Hospitality, though a Christian duty, is to be offered ungrudgingly to one another without resenting the time and expense which may be involved. Though hospitality to all people is certainly pleasing to God, listen, Peter's emphasis on hospitality to one another, that is to other Christians within the household of faith, is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Right? Can I... Put an accent on that because what is commonly featured in the church is the church's obligation, duty, and responsibility to love the world, to reach out to the world, to be hospitable to the world. Now, listen, I'm all over that. I'm for that. That's part of the church. But you don't make that point at the expense of more obvious points that you are God's special people. You are the family that God brought together. He went out and found us in our lost condition and brought us in and made us a family together. And he said, now you be hospitable to one another. Do you understand how dysfunctional it is for us to be hawking something to the world that we don't have any desire to live toward one another? They will know your mind by the love you have for each other. Don't take up some noble placard that says, man, man, you know, I love Jesus, but man, I just can't stand his people. 
I mean, I'm, that sounds cool and everything. It's offensive to God. Right? Can you understand if you walked up and said, hey, Keith, I've, I met your children. And I love this one and that one, but I really can't stand those. What do you think I'm going to do and say, oh, man, that's cool. That's cool, man. That's great. I'm going to hit you. Because whatever you're basing your appreciation on, I love all my kids with their strengths and their weaknesses. I love them all equally the same. And you offend me when you go to them and say, well, I, I, I. so they have this, well, I love this, but, you know, God's people. Oh, man, I love God, but I don't love his people. Listen, there is something so wrong with that. And then, then that same nobility is the guy who's hyper-evangelistic, who loves the world, and he's down on everybody who's loving the church. Uh, are we reading the Bible? Are we finding out that God is nuts about his people? I'm not going to dance again this week. You'll have to get the video from last week. God loves his people. Now, God loves the world, but God loves his people. So God's looking for hospitality and affection and love amongst his people. And, and we need vehicles for that, right? Hospitality, I, I think, in its narrowest sense, has to do with opening our homes. In its broader sense, I think it has to do with just opening our lives to one another. I'm making room for people in our world. And obviously that will get expressed in the places that we hang out and where we are. Don't think hospitality has to be restricted, that you're only being hospitable when someone is eating a meal in your home. Although I think that should happen a lot more than it does. You're being hospitable when your life becomes accessible to others. And they are able to participate in your life with you and you participate in theirs. Thomas Schreiner says hospitality was one of the marks of the Christian community. The words without grumbling acknowledge that those who open their homes may grow tired of the service. Hence, they're exhorted to be hospitable gladly, not caving in to temptation to begrudge their charity to others. Um, those who open their homes may grow tired of the service. Can I just inject something into that thought? In your walk as a Christian, please don't get caught off guard by being tired. This is how we can respond sometimes. If I'm tired, then what I'm doing is wrong. And I need to stop doing it. All right, how many of you guys would be unemployed tomorrow if that was the case? Um, many would quit on marriages. Many would quit serving in the church. Uh, many would stop fighting sin in their life. Are you tired of fighting sin? I mean, pardon me, the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to a body that doesn't have these issues in it. <laughs> I'm not just talking about health issues. I'm, I'm talking about attitudes and issues in me that are just too accessible to sin. So you're going to get tired. The Bible's not covering that up. It's, it's not acting like you won't. It says, do not grow weary in well-doing, for once you have persevered, you, you will reap a reward. Right? So the Bible acknowledges you're going to get tired. That doesn't say we quit. Just as we recognize we live in a fallen world, I will seek to make some adjustments. But because I'm tired, doesn't mean I'm doing the wrong thing. 
You're tired of serving in the body of Christ. Yeah, that doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. You're tired of working for your family to work. Yeah, doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Don't quit just because that's tiring. All right, so don't be caught off guard by tired. I think sometimes tired sneaks up on us and it makes us kind of unplug all of our wiring and go, I'm tired, nothing in my life makes sense. <laughs> what, what do I do? Okay, we'll just start by acknowledging tiredness is part of living in a fallen world. And then move from there. Don't, don't abandon everything that God's made clear because you're tired. Alexander Strzok says some very helpful thoughts. He says, brotherly love entails knowing one another and sharing life together. Unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is just one more empty religious theory. It is impossible to know or grow close to our brothers and sisters by meeting for an hour a week with a large group in a church sanctuary. It is through the ministry of hospitality that we provide the fellowship and care that nurtures true brotherly and sisterly love. Listen, for the super vast majority of church-going people, This is as intimate as it will ever get for them, right here, right now, without the eight-minute break that we had earlier. Now, can you imagine, this is all we got. We come together. Now, this this is right. It's right that you're all seated right now listening to the same thing together. That's right. That's biblical. It's right that we teach the Word of God, that we orient the church around the teaching of the Word of God. That's all right. But... This dynamic may inform you about the opportunity to build affection for one another, but it's not building affection for one another. You're going to have to do that on your schedule. You're going to have to do that in your life. See, hospitality is not a school of the word meeting. It's not even a covenant group meeting. Now listen, we do covenant groups as an attempt to facilitate this dynamic more into the church, but we're not intending for covenant groups to replace relational dynamics. We, we intend covenant groups to stimulate relational dynamics. So you understand, you can, you can not be building affection for others in the body of Christ and not be building brotherly, sisterly care by moving from attending this meeting to attending one of those meetings. And now I show up at somebody's house and I sit there, but, you know, there's not real intimacy. I'm not really taking on that person's life and care for them. I'm not making myself accessible to them. Now, there's no hospitality going on between me and anybody else. I'm just being included in a meeting in someone's home. And maybe they're being hospitable, but I don't know that I'm being hospitable. Right? Hospitality is an every member ministry. It's not just for a few. It may look different. I think it should. It'll look different from person to person. Some people's gifts are stronger and their personalities are different. But hospitality is in each one of us. Hospitality is in our court, individually. So there's a little bit of, and we're probably going to do this on purpose, there's a little bit of trying to sort of get things rolling that we'll kind of, okay, we'll step into that realm. We'll put on name tags, and we'll take a break in the service, and we'll do some things in the future, trying to stir up some dynamic of opening our lives to each other. But at some point, everybody's got to grab it and run with it. It's got to be owned individually. And you have to determine, okay, what does it look like for me or for my family? What does it look like for us to become more hospitable? What adjustments do we need to make so that our life 
has handles on it. And we are reaching toward the handles of others who are seeking to connect with us. It's an every member ministry. It doesn't fit in a time slot. It's, it fits in your life. However you fit it in your life, it fits in your life. All right, let me give you a couple of little helpful passages here before we get ready to celebrate communion. Hebrews chapter 10. You know, what, what's, what's going on when we get together to intentionally stir affection toward one another, to build brotherly, sisterly care for one another through the vehicle of hospitality? What kind of stuff, what kind of ingredients are we going to encounter when we do that? Look, look at some of these thoughts about these dynamics. Just kind of, I don't know, I want you to smell this. This is cooking, right? This is the smell of hospitality, what it can do for us. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, now that's not a foreign Bible verse for anybody, right? Most usually we kind of hack off the ends of it and quote the middle part. Do not neglect to meet together. Right, that's where we kind of go. I hadn't seen you in a while. You know, the Bible says, don't, don't neglect fellowship. Don't neglect to meet together, blah, blah, blah. And so we, we come into a meeting like this, and we, all right, this is a meeting, and we are meeting together, and we are here. All right, all right. So I think this does kind of fulfill that verse a little bit, but I think this probably has more to do with one-on-one relationships. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right, so this is not instruction for the pastor to stir up the congregation to love and good works. This is an encouragement for the relational dynamics that exist between individuals to stir up one another, to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together. It's a habit of some. Encourage one another. Right, so when we come together, when you intentionally create opportunities to be with other people, let these things inform what you're after in their life. Are you after stirring up love and good works in their lives? Are you after encouraging them? Right? Encouragement goes such a long way, especially when we're paying attention to someone's life and we can jump into their need and into their moment and encourage them. Right? If you don't know that person, it's very hard to encourage them, isn't it? You don't know anything about what's going on in their life. You don't know what they just succeeded at. You don't know what they just failed at. And so you sort of, you can't really encourage them. It takes some knowledge of the person to jump in there and say, hey, listen, I know that thing happened to you last weekend. But man, I've been praying for you, and I want to encourage you in this. Okay, all that means something, and we need it from one another. And it builds affection. The fact that you took time to pay attention to someone's life causes that person's heart to step towards you. It's like, man, I know you're busy, and you've got a lot going on, and you, you were thinking about me? You know, hey, you, you got my attention. You actually care about me. Right? That's affection. And we're stepping towards each other in a real way, right? That's what's in this moment of hospitality. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, right? Eventually, Hebrews is going to tell us to be hospitable, but look at what's being brought into the conversation along the way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Right, cake man, you know what that's all about, huh? Strengthen some weak knees? Yeah, I'm with you on that, dude. 
and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, right? These are relational helps that we give to each other. Somebody whose life is coming to pieces. And yet there's fellowship and friendship and affection and people take up this call. Strengthen the knees that are weak, the ones that are about to buckle and that person's going down. No, no, no. Run around that person. Be hospitable to them. Invite them into your home. Get them involved in your life. Strengthen them. Say something to them. Bring something that's going to help them in that moment. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I love this. I love this verse. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You know anybody right now who, whatever they're living in, it doesn't look like the grace of God? It looks like burden, discouragement, bondage, affliction. doesn't look like the grace of God. See, this is a passage telling us, make sure no one, no one in this building, no one in this family fails to obtain the grace of God. Listen, if you've tasted grace, you want others to taste grace, don't you? If you've tasted the release and the joy and the peace and the effect of God bringing you to himself through the cross and his commitment to you in spite of all that you are, if you've tasted grace, then... Make sure no one goes without tasting that grace. If you hear somebody, you find somebody, you look around and you see somebody don't look like tasting grace, go find them and bring grace with you and help them. That no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or holy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent. Well, he sought it with tears. And then look when you scoot over into verse Chapter 13, you go back to let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right? Do, you, do you see this happening over and over in, in Scripture? Brotherly love and hospitality are like roommates. In order for us to ever communicate brotherly, family, affectionate love, it's going to take lives that overlap have some commonality in them. All right, now let me, let me release everyone from superhuman applications in this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. All right, could be, could be that's a verse talking about us relating to the world. But there's so much one another dynamic in these passages. Might it might it be that in the body of Christ there will be strangers to you? Now, I think this has to do with showing a complete stranger hospitality as well. But there's some strangers in the room today, right? In the body of Christ. You don't know everyone here. Right, can I release you from thinking you need to know everybody here? That's not where this goes. I know a couple of folks responded with, man, I've been in the church for five years, and I didn't even know that person went to church here. Okay, that's going to be true five years from now as well. There's going to be other people you don't know. And you know what our goal is here? Our goal is not to memorize a thousand names. That's not our goal. Right, so we're not trying to figure out, how can we make sure everybody's on a first-name basis with everybody? Okay, that, that can't happen, and it would be a, a waste of effort. Your world can only be so big. What I think that God wants to encourage us to do is, is can you just find the edges and can you believe for little bigger edges and can you just include a few more 
in your world. If everyone did that, then everyone would belong and everyone would be cared for and everyone would have affection on display and encouragement on display in their lives. All right, so that's the, that's the call. And I want to I leave this question with you as we get ready to celebrate communion with the worship team will come up and the communion team will come up. What can you do, write down for yourselves, what can you do going from here today to take a step in the realm of hospitality? Just take a step, right? You don't need to publish a book on it. You don't need to be ready to speak on it at a circuit. What can you, what can you do right now just to take a step of hospitality in your life? How can you open your life further to people than where you are right now? What can you do in your schedule? What can you do in the way in which you pursue people? What can you do in the foyer when, you know, normally the, the pattern of life may involve us running right to the same four to six people that we kind of get around every Sunday? What can I do on a weekly basis, monthly basis, something where, I, you know, I come in and I'm armed to find out, you know, who doesn't feel like they belong? Okay, who do I not know here that I can draw into my people? Hey, I got, I'm not saying abandon those four to six people. Tell them goodbye this morning. This will be the last morning you're going to talk to them. No. Matter of fact, I, you know, some of the guys, we had this in a business meeting on Sunday night where it's a big discussion about just, just, just all relocate, right? Let's just all get up. That's why Bill's freaking everybody out this morning by being on the wrong side of the church for him. Uh, but let's just relocate, right? I had people send emails. I, hadn't, I didn't realize such strategy was taking place, but I love it. Had an email from a couple that said, do we really need to do that? Because you see, we invite people that we know to come to church, and they can't find us. So we tell them exactly where we're sitting. So in case they come in, they can find us. And so we're there in those chairs, like every week, in case our friends come in. Sometimes they do. They can all right, that's strategy. <laughs> I hadn't thought that through. That's excellent. All right, well, here's the deal. Because you can, you can not relate to people on this side of the room just like you didn't relate to people on that side of the room. All right, so you do realize changing chairs, it doesn't do anything. And if your group sits together, right, you got a group that sits together. I don't even have a problem with that. Can you just pull some more people in your group? Right, can you just determine that what's needed was me remembering at one time you were not a people. At one time you didn't belong. And somebody with a revelation from God reached into your world and grabbed a hold of you and said, hey, why don't you come to lunch with us? Hey, we meet for a group. It's called a covenant group. We meet on Thursday nights. Why don't you come? Just belonging and giving folks an opportunity to belong. And so I, I encourage all of us in that, in that regard. Now, here's, here's a part of this passage that I love the most. Right? It's a pretty big thing. And this is what we're celebrating today in communion. We are celebrating the amazing dynamic in verse 10. Once... You were not a people. But now you are the people of God, right? This is called communion. 
It has to do with the community dynamic of the body of Christ. There was a time, guys, where we couldn't celebrate this because we were not a people. I was going to church. I was a religious guy growing up. I did not belong to God and his people. I just had some ideas that I had learned about God. Until this day happened, right? Rest of verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. And do you know what that's referencing? This is not a reference to you caught God on a good day in a good mood. And so once you were not his, but God, God had a good day and you got in. No. The mercy you and I received was a transaction that took place when God conceived a plan to take his son and put him in a human body and let him live a perfect life upon the earth. And so that when he got to the end of his life, what he should have done was just been translated back into fellowship with the Father. But instead, God, by his plan, had him impaled on a cross and took all the punishment of the sin that you and I created and put it on his son. He held his son responsible for sins that he never committed. He held his son responsible for sins that I committed you committed so that he could look at us and give us mercy instead of judgment I'm not bringing judgment to you I'm bringing mercy because I brought judgment to my son once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy what we celebrate in communion today is belonging together by the mercy of God These are moments when we ask the question, God, why am I here? Why am I included in this? I once was not a people. Why am I a people now? I once have not received mercy. Why have I received mercy now? And all of us should be scratching our heads in wonder. But for the mercy of God, if you've received mercy, in a moment I'm going to invite you to come and to receive the emblems of communion that we recognize and celebrate these truths. But you could be here today in the category of once you had not received mercy. Do you understand? There's two peoples in this passage. There are those who have not received mercy. Oh, then maybe they've heard about mercy. Maybe they've heard the story. I've heard the story about Christ, what you just said. Yeah, I've heard that story before. I had heard it too, but I had never received it myself. And so I remember once I had not received God's mercy and I was apart from him and I didn't belong to him or his people. Listen, if you're here today and that's you, like it was me, like it was so many of us, What's stopping you from receiving mercy? It's mercy. It's not performance. It's not an investment plan. 
It's mercy. God's looking for you to receive by faith his mercy. Receiving what he did on your behalf in the person of Christ. And listen, if your heart is inclined to receive mercy, your heart will be inclined to love the God who gives mercy. And what a difference that will make in your life. But if you're here this morning, before we give this out, what qualifies a person to celebrate today is one who has received mercy and has become part of the people of God. If, if that's not you, but you want it to be you, I have all of us bow our heads right now. And you need to talk to God. I'll, I'll, I'll throw some thoughts in the, into the mix. But right now, you and God have a conversation. I want to pray for those that are here this morning who feel like aliens and strangers, Lord, who don't feel the sense of belonging that your word describes. And, and they're not sure this morning that they have ever truly received this mercy, but they want to. Lord, they're here today and they want to belong to you and they want to be forgiven by you and they want what Jesus Christ did to count for them and for mercy to be imparted to them. But for all that are here this morning in that place, if you sense that that's where you are, you tell God that. Right? You know how to speak. Speak to God in this moment. Say, God, want mercy in my life. I want you to be merciful to me. I want to belong to you. I want to turn away from doing life my own way for my own purposes. I'm looking to you, the God who sent his son to die on a cross to forgive me and to remove my sins and to give me mercy. God, today I want to receive that mercy. I don't want to just know about that mercy. I want to receive it. I want it to be mine, God. Tuck it away in my heart. Apply it to my life. Today, March 27th, Lord, is the day I'll remember when I received your mercy. What we want to do now is we want to celebrate communion. Let's celebrate what we've been listening to. So if I could get all the sections, if you would exit to your left and come up and take communion, go back the opposite way to your seats. So if you're, you're going to be going to your left, out the row, and then come up, receive communion, and then return to your seats. Um, and we'll hold the emblems of communion until we can celebrate together in just a few moments.